What do you know about compounding interest? Maybe some of you kids have, have learned about compounding interest at school. Do you know, have you heard about interest? You know where you go and you put your, your $5 in the bank and then after a year they say, thank you for letting us have your $5. Here's an extra dollar. And so now you've got $6. And if you leave it in the bank, after a little while, they'll come back and say, here's another dollar. Thank you. And if you leave, so you'll have $7. Yes, I know these interest rates are not realistic. <laughs> and then, so this happens year after year. And the more money that you leave in the bank account, the more it grows, right? So it's compounding. And this is great for investing and growing. But today we're looking at a different kind of compounding. A, a nasty kind of compounding the kind of compounding that we don't want, which is the way that sin compounds. I've got another example of what it's like. You imagine you've got a garden bed that's clear of weeds and you've got just the things you wanted planted in there. But inevitably, a weed pops up. Let's say it's a thistle. And if you don't deal with the weed, if you don't deal with the thistle, it flowers. And the wind blows and all the seeds blow all over the garden and then what happens a few weeks later? Not only do you have one thistle plant, you have thistle plants all over your garden popping up. And if you don't run around and deal with them and get rid of them, then they flower and the seeds blow again. And before you know it, your whole garden is overrun with weeds. The problem compounds as it grows. It gets bigger and bigger unless we deal with it. And today, in, in, in our passage, what we see is a really stark example of what sin looks like as it compounds. In some sense, we've been seeing this unfold as we've gone through Judges and we've seen time and time again in this cycle of sin and rebellion and then God frees them from that, there's redemption, but then they turn back to their sin and rebellion. And so we're here at this final section of Judges. After this series of Judges, these great deliverers, we are here in the last part of Judges with two big stories that show us just how bad things have got in Israel. It's a, it's a big compounding sin problem. And so, you know, we talk about happy endings. You know, there's, you love the, a good adventure story where there's a happy ending or, you know, maybe a great romance where the, the girl and the guy, they finally uh, get together and they marry and they have their happy ever after. We, we love a good story with a good ending Unfortunately, Judges is not one of those books. Although we've seen some happy endings in the individual judge stories, the actual ending of the book as a whole is a tragedy. It's tragedy upon tragedy. Our story today in chapter 17 and 18 is a chapter, a, a, a section that I've divided into four parts, a story in four parts. Let's call them four chapters of this story. And each chapter really highlights some grievous sin. And so it's going to be a little bit depressing, a little bit sad and, and, and muted. But it's in part deliberate because when, when I'm talking about God's Word, I try and represent in the tone of the message something of the tone of the passage. And that's what we have. This tone of this passage is just matter of fact. This is bad stuff that was happening. So we're just going to talk about the bad stuff. But I promise we will have at least a little taste of good news before the end. In these four chapters, the first chapter 
there is theft and idolatry. Theft and idolatry. In most societies around the world, almost every moral code you can find, there is some version of do not steal. It's an almost universal truth. You don't take stuff that doesn't belong to you. Now, there are some tribes that have a different understanding of personal property to other people, but generally speaking, we still understand that you don't take something that you have no right to, that doesn't belong to you. And the reason why this is so well known, this is so universal, I think is because God has encoded this on our minds. We inherently understand it is part of God's natural revelation that He has given to mankind. But even if we didn't have that, God has specifically spoken to humanity and said it. He said it, uh, and He said it from a mountain, way back in salvation history. God spoke from a mountain as He entered into a special relationship with His chosen people, and He said, you shall not steal. Or to use the, the King James, thou shalt not steal. This was very clear. So even if we suppress the truth that we inherently know that it's wrong to steal, God has specifically said, thou shalt not steal. It was very clear. It was part of the law that God gave to His people in Israel, His people, His chosen people, on their way up to the promised land. And this was characteristic of how they were to live, to respect each other's property not to take things that didn't belong to them. And this is how they were supposed to live once they settled in the Promised Land. So let's cross over to Israel a few, you know, a few generations later, several generations later, in the Promised Land, and let's see how are they doing. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim. Okay, so they're in the land. They're in Ephraim, whose name was Micah. This is a, a good name. I think it means, uh, is Yahweh Lord or, or something along those lines. Now, who is like God? I think that's what it is. Who is like God? And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. This is not looking good. This is how things are in Israel. There's a guy who's stealing vast sums of mother, money from his mother. And then she curses it. And because he, he's worried about the curse, let's get this straight here. He's not going, oh, I feel sorry for ripping off my mom. He's saying, because you, it's basically, he's worried that the curse is going to come to effect. And so he thinks he should give the money back. He heard what she said and he gives his mom the money back. And then she blesses her son. Now, to be sure, it, it, it is a good thing to own up to the wrong, to own up to what if you have done the wrong thing, to say, yes, I did the wrong thing, and to try and make amends, to try and make restitution. This is a good thing. But she says, blessed be my son in the Lord. It seems a little bit out of place when uh, somebody has just stolen something from you. She doesn't seem to be all that perturbed or surprised, but maybe we're reading into it. So let's go back to God's law once more. For Micah and his mum, who are living in Israel, in Ephraim, here's what the law says. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, so an idol, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. 
So God here in his law gives a curse to anybody who would create an idol and set it up in secret. None of this, uh, none of this uh, uh, what, what I do in the privacy of my own home is, uh, is none of anybody else's business. No, this worship is, is public health, right? Worship is public health. And in, under God's law, he says, even if you do it in secret in your home, cursed be that man, let alone doing it in public and inviting other people to partake in it. So Micah's mum is not the only one uttering curses. God is cursing people who would set up idols, create idols among his people. So no idols, and especially no idols of God himself, because who knows what God looks like? God doesn't have a form that you can create and put into an idol. So let's see, now that God has given this law, let's see how things are going in Israel. Micah's mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. He restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. Wow, this is good. Oh, to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I restore it to you. She goes to dedicate money to the Lord, not for the sake of the building up of the tabernacle and for sacrifices and for the proper worship. No, she gives the money to the Lord for the creation of a carved metal image. Things are so bad that this mother thinks it's a good idea. She thinks she's doing the right thing by dedicating money, to, by giving a tithe, basically, get, dedicating a tithe for the creation of an idol. Here she is doing exactly what God has told her not to do. How far the people of Israel have fallen. They've just become just like all of the nations around them who worship through idols. Now, idols aren't as big a deal for us now. We're not, we don't walk down the street and see uh, temples with idols in them. It's not, it's not a thing that is as common, uh, it's especially in the West. But, um, you know, there, there, are, there, are still, there are still places where idols reign supreme. But idolatry is an external sin. And this is like many of our sins. They are sins that are done on the outside, but you can also sin in your heart, right? And Jesus talks about this. Oh, look, I didn't murder my brother, but I was angry with him and I wished I could. So there is the sin that is the external thing, and then there is the sin in the heart. And so although we aren't running around setting up idols in physical flesh, it is still possible and still, um, yeah, still possible and plausible that we might be tempted to fall into idolatry of the heart. So this isn't just a thing for people of old, though the physical thing is not common and probably not a snare to us. But you can't take God and turn Him into an idol. You can't take a physical thing that God created and say, this is your God. They thought that these idols would be inhabited by the spirit of their God. And so then in order to worship this idol, this icon made out of timber or stone and precious metals, they thought that to worship that thing was to worship their God. But God says, that's not how you worship me. But here is this woman, so happy that, she, that God got her money back, that she makes an offering to commission an idol. So we've seen this compounding sin, right? 
over generations of faithlessness. Not only is there theft, there is idolatry and idolatry in the name of the Lord who specifically said, I don't like it and I don't want it. They think that they're doing a good thing, but they're actually practicing straight out evil. As I said, they think that this lady thinks she's doing a good thing, but she's actually doing exactly the opposite of what God wants. And I was thinking that that's not uncommon to find many people today talking about things that they think are good, but it's actually the exact opposite of what God wants. There's been increasing faithlessness over our generations. And there are those who wander around thinking they're doing the right thing by following their heart. They've been told, if I follow my heart, that's the way to go. But that's exact opposite of what we should do. We have people who think they're doing the right thing by leaving their spouses because it's not right for me or we've fallen out of love. There are people who don't uh, discipline and instruct their children because they don't want to be mean. They don't want to... uh, They don't want to traumatize their children. All the while, they're setting their children up for great trauma later in life. We have uh, friends and family who decide to pursue evil, and we think we're doing the right thing by supporting them in their pursuit of evil instead of saying no and giving them the hard news that this is not good. But it's not just out there, right? We don't just look out there and see, oh, look at all the bad people out there. No, this is something that affects us as well. We are affected by this age as well. The ethics of the age have, a, have, have seeped into our lives as much as we would have tried to, to push them out. We have been catechized them in some way or another. And so I think we should be on the lookout to to see where we are being led astray, where we think we're doing the right thing, but actually we're doing the exact opposite of what God wants us to do. So how can we know this? How can we know where we're doing the exact opposite? Well, we need to know what God's Word says. If we don't know what God's Word says, how will we know when we're doing what God doesn't want us to do? We need to go to the Word. Go to the Word. That's why we're spending this time here right now, taking this time to carefully look at what God's Word says, because we need to know it. That's why we read it out loud, and that's why uh, the the Christian tradition, it's a tradition, remember, of reading your Bible every day, or at least wanting to read your Bible every day, has arisen, because we know that we need to know God's Word. It is a good thing to listen to the Lord, and to be engrossed in His Word, to to be trained by it, to to meditate on it day and night. We'll be less likely to fall into abominations if we know what abomination looks like. But we need more than just to know what it looks like. We also need somebody who will change our hearts so that we are enabled to do what God wants us to do. But in in this day in Israel, there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They needed a godly king who could set things right, who would teach them how to worship God properly, who would teach the people, who would lead them away from evil, who could deliver them. They needed a king who could deliver them. In the next part of our passage, we see there's a made-up religion. A made-up religion. And, uh, and kids, if, you're, uh, if you would like something to draw on your piece of paper... 
my suggestion is that you should draw an, the, the ugliest and scariest monster that you can imagine, and you can call it sin. That's my suggestion for you, because this is what sin is like. It's like a growing, ugly monster that, that, that grows and grows and grows. So our made-up religion, what do the names Muhammad, Buddha, and Joseph Smith all have in common? Here are three guys who each made up a religion of their own. They each invented a religion. And while these guys are probably the most famous, they're, they are by no means the only ones. There's plenty of people going around in history, and even today, making up false religions. And now often these uh, new religions are actually branches of something else that was going on. And the, these people were claiming that now they had the real thing. Joseph Smith famously does this because he, had, he was confused about the differences between the denominations and he didn't know which Christian denomination he was supposed to go with. And then all of a sudden, he has this brand new denomination. Then this is obviously the right one. It's a bit hard to imagine what's going through the mind of a religious innovator like this or like we're going to see shortly in our passage. But we can guess. We know that some may have been deceived by demons, that some probably had delusions of grandeur and imagined something and ran with it. Some people probably thought they were doing others a favour by improving their religion. Some people are completely unaware of the implications of their actions and so they're deceived and they deceive others with falsehoods. But in this chapter, we have this striking example of religious innovation we don't know what these people were thinking, but I could take bets on that it was a combination of these things, of uh, demonic stuff, uh, delusions of grandeur, thinking that they were making improvements and a dash of plain old stupidity to go in there and mix. This story tells us of the development of a cult, and I don't just mean cult in the sense of um, the way we think of it, a small group of weird fringe views. I mean in the sense that there's a development of a worship site with a temple and with uh, worship paraphernalia and a priesthood and, a, and holy relics and so on. But this is strange because God expressly commanded the people about how they were to worship him. Israel already has a bunch of law about how to do proper worship of God and what he wants and where to do it. In fact, God said when they were going up into the promised land, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all the tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. And a few verses later, and there you shall eat there before the Lord, as in this is where you have sacrificial meals, like um, um, at, this, at the sacrifices. You shall rejoice, and you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall do not, you shall not do anything... Let me get this right... <clears throat> you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. So, just to simplify that, you shall not do what we're already doing, which is whatever is right in your own eyes. There's going to be a special place that God's going to choose for his place for, of worship, and that's where you're going to go and worship God. You and your families, that's where it's all going to happen when we get to the promised land. The tabernacle was the mobile complex that they worshipped God at while they were in their desert wilderness wanderings. And as they came into the land, there was a period of time where the tabernacle was kind of set up 
in this particular time period. It was set up at Shiloh, but they hadn't, God hadn't told them yet where he wanted the proper permanent temple to go. So they had the tabernacle and they knew that's where they were supposed to worship God and God was going to tell them where to build the permanent one. So let's get back to Israel and see what's happening there. And the man Micah had a shrine. Okay, this is not Shiloh. And he made an ephod and household gods. Oh no, this is not going well. And he ordained one of his sons. This is a man from Ephraim. This is not a Levite. He ordained one of his own sons who became his priest. And in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is exactly what God, we just read before in Deuteronomy. God said, you shall not do this just doing whatever's right in your own eyes. And here we are with Micah doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Setting up this temple complex, this shrine. He gets his own son, makes him priest. The Levites were the dedicated priests to the Lord, but he's taken upon himself to invent his own priesthood. God has given clear examples of how much he abhors innovation in worship. You might remember the story of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. Each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. This is how much God abhors innovations in worship. Worship is not something to be trifled with, where we can go, oh, this feels better. I like this better. This way is going to bring more people in. No. God said how he wanted to be worshipped. And when Nadab and Abihu thought, oh, we'll just put this other fire in the censers. We don't know exactly the details of what kind it was, but they thought they knew better. And they went before the Lord. The Lord doesn't give them any warning. They are an object lesson of what it looks like, of how much God has a distaste for innovation in worship. This is Aaron's sons, his two first sons. In terms of the structure of the priesthood at that time, these guys are second level. These are the second in command of the whole priesthood. And they messed up on this front and God wiped them off the face of the earth as an example of how holy he is and how important it is to follow what he has commanded in worship. We have no right to be innovative in worship. How are things going in Israel a few years later? They're inventing their own shrines, they're setting up their own idols, they're setting up their own priesthood, all in the name of the Lord. A travelling Levite happened to come through where Micah was living the Levites were a priest class, as I mentioned. These were the guys who were supposed to be the priests. And Micah actually convinces him to stay. He's like, oh, mate, if you want to stick around and live with me, I'll give you a sweet pay packet with some benefits, including I'll provide you your clothes, which was um, a much bigger deal than when an employer says, oh, we'll give you a uniform. No, this is because um, clothes were more expensive. And so the Levites says, hmm. This is actually a pretty sweet deal. Ten silver pieces a year. And, you know, I get to live here, live in ease and comfort. And so the Levite says, yeah, I'll go for it. And Micah ordained the Levite 
and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. How superstitious. If I get a holy man and I can keep him at my house, then everything will go well for me. The Levites gained their office by being zealous for the holiness of God. In fact, they were called to go and kill their own countrymen who were rebelling against God. And it was on that day, off the back of that act of holiness and zealousness for God's holiness, that God basically rewarded the tribe of Levi with this perpetual priesthood. This was their inheritance in Israel. They didn't get a particular land for themselves to settle in. God said, no, I'm your inheritance. You get to live off me, essentially, and live with me. They served at the temple, and they would live off the tithes and offerings that people would give for the sustenance, for the, um, for the upkeep of God's temple and of, of, for the holy people. This was their great reward, and here is a Levite basically backtracking, walking all of that back and doing the opposite of what a Levite should be doing. If it would have been more in character from those first Levites for him to take up a sword and to destroy that shrine as soon as he saw it. This Levite has no idea about the word of God. If he did, he would have put all things straight. And we see here this compounding sin once again. The worship is all messed up. And so, because they don't know the law of God, because of their faithlessness, because of their idolatry, they don't know what's going on here. They think this is a good idea. They think this is a sweet deal. And this is the age that we live in, right? Just as this is a commentary on the, the, the community, the, the society of Israel of that day, it's a commentary on our day, where we live in a society where we're all messed up. And we don't know our right hand from our left, so to speak. We don't know what's good or evil anymore. And we don't know how to worship God, because God's word has departed from us. We don't know it. And we think that it's up to us to invent how to be worshipped how God wants to be worshipped, or to do it the way that we think feels right. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They needed a godly king who would set things right, who would show them how to worship God rightly, who could teach the people, who could lead them away from evil. They needed a king who could do the amazing and impossible, who would save them from their compounding sin. In the third kind of chapter of this story, we see that they're calling evil good. Calling evil good. You might remember that Israel was on a mission. They'd been given a mission from God, just as the church has been given a mission from God. Their mission was to go up into the promised land to wipe out all of the rebellious, evil tribes and to take the land as an inheritance. Right? They were on, that was their mission. That's what they were called to do. They weren't just to go and kill anybody and take anybody's land. God told them the bounds of the land that was to be theirs, the people who were there that they were to get rid of, and where each tribe was going to be able to live. That was their mission. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, I will blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break your, their pillars in pieces. That's pretty clear. 
Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites, and there are other places where we get other lists and, and in more detail about these tribes and who they were and where they were. But God has specific people that he wanted them to blot out because of their wickedness and rebellion and for Israel to take the land as their inheritance. So they had their mission. How did it go? Well, earlier in Judges, we read this. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan, the tribe of Dan of Israel. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. So Dan was not taking their inheritance. Now, we know that there's probably sin caught up with this because of their perpetual sin beforehand. God was not blessing their activities now. But the point still remains that Dan was not taking their inheritance that God had given them. God had told them what to do and they had not done it. And they had basically given up and were hiding in the hills instead of on the land that God had given as their inheritance. So how's it going now at the other end of the other end of Judges? In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had ever fallen to them. This is not looking good. This is not what God had told them to do. They've got their own ideas. We can't take the inheritance from the Amorites that God told us to go and kill and take their land. So we're going to go and find our own inheritance. We're going to have a look around. And so five spies went up to look for somewhere for the Dan tribe of Dan to live. They're searching for a new place to settle away from what God had given them. And they happened to pass through Micah's area and they happened to meet the Levite who was there uh, looking after the temple shrine thingy. And they get talking and they realize, oh, you know, how did you come to be here? What's your story? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, actually, seeing as you're a priest, you've got your ephod and whatnot, can you ask God if what we're doing is the right way to go? They said, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is, a, is under the eye of the Lord. Yeah. Hang on a second. This isn't computing. God told them what to do. They haven't done it. And now they're trying to do something different to what God told them to do. And the priest says, go on your way. Go in peace. You're on the right track. Now, this Levite is claiming to represent God, but God isn't actually the one who speaks here. In fact, God does not speak in the second part, this last part of Judges. He is silent. Since the angel who, uh, uh, who appeared to Samson's mum, we have no direct message from the Lord. What we have here is the Levite reporting what he says God said. But we don't need to believe that this is truly from God. For starters, this priest is not actually serving God. He's serving an imitation of God. And secondly, um, he's telling them something that God has explicitly told the Danites uh, they, they, telling them something that is um, a subversion of what God has already told them to do. They're saying peace, saying peace on something that God has not called peace. In fact, the, the, the Levite is telling them what they want to hear, itching their, scratching their itching ears. And this is really bad. God pronounced a woe on people who do this kind of thing. 
He said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You can't just swap these things around and pretend that they're the opposite. You can't just say, oh, you want to go and take your inheritance over here where God hasn't said, and yes, God is happy with that. You can't, you can't, just, you can't just mix and match and call whatever you think is good what God thinks is good. How much, again, does this reflect our own time? Where we are told what is, what is good is evil and what is evil is good. Where people want to say that sin is not sin. To say peace over people who are practicing sin. Right now on the global scale of the church, the, the Anglican church in the UK is doing this openly and blatantly and saying, we want to bless sin. And the rest of a lot of the Anglican church is saying, no, we don't want to have anything to do with that. We're going to cut ties. Thank you very much. But this is not just a thing that happens somewhere else. Come and go into any church and you're likely to find places where sin is being called good. What kinds of things? There is plenty of churches who preach greed as a good thing. There are plenty of churches who overlook or approve sexual immorality. There are places where there is a preaching against godly authority. There is places where partiality is lauded. There are places where there is rejection of holiness, all in the name, we cover it up with other words. There's a rejection of holiness, but we'll say, oh, I'm being authentic. There's a rejection of personal holiness, and we say, oh, but it's more loving to those around me. But once again, this isn't just a thing that happens out there. This is a thing that happens with us, that seeps in, that affects us. We need to look at the log in our own eye before we talk about the speck in others. And this is connected to our form of worship. And we're not immune. We shouldn't just think of ourselves more highly than we ought. It's very likely that we have our own blind spots. We need to reject the lies of those who say that those things that are abominable to God are somehow good. And we don't need to be apologetic. Like, we don't need to pretend like, like, I'm not saying we'd be rude, but I'm saying we don't need to feel like we're doing the wrong thing when we say, no, thank you, I'm going to stick with God's word. We have no right to proclaim what God hates as acceptable. In those days in Israel, there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. If only there was a godly king who could set things right for them, who could teach them how to worship God, who could teach them what is right, who could lead them away from evil or could even do the impossible and save them from their own sin. In our last chapter, we're actually coming full circle. We're coming back to where we started with theft and idolatry. In the great irony, the guy who was a thieving idolater, Micah, gets stolen from and um, has his idols stolen. The Danites who were told, oh, yep, you're, you're fine to go, God's watching over you, 
they found a spot where they wanted to dwell. It happened to be a group, a, a tribe of people, an unnamed tribe of people um, who were a little bit like the Sidonians, but they didn't have any connection to the Sidonians. They were kind of living off in their, in their blissful utopia, doing their own thing. There was, it was a productive, prosperous land where they were living, and they were just minding their own business. The Danites scoped them out and say, that's the place. We're going to go and wipe these people off the face of the map and take their land for ourselves. Not the, not the Amorites, which they were told to do. No, this unnamed people, quietly minding their own business, is where the Danites are going to go. And so they're on their way. They're on the march to go and to destroy these innocent people. And, well, let's just read the report. Arise, let us go up against them, for we've seen the land, and behold, it's very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. They're putting words in God's mouth. They're saying this because of what the Levite had said, because they've been deceived. They said, look, it's, God has given it to us. So they're on the march and they end up back at Micah's place and they're thinking, well, actually, when we take the land, we're going to need our own idolatrous temple shrine. So let's just take Micah's and with us. So that's what they decide to do. They decide to steal. They, um, five men who'd gone up to scout out the land went up and they entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household golds, the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with 600 armed men with weapons of war. So... They're not going to make any bold moves with 600 guards standing by, but that's what they do. But the Levite goes to object, and the Danites say, you know, are you really going to object while we've got 600 armed men here? But also he said, um, they said, well, how about you come with us? You come and you be our priest. We'll basically, this is a, a pay rise, a pay bump, a, a bump in prestige, you don't just need to be a priest to one family, you can be priest to a whole tribe. And so that's what he did. He gave in, he, he gave in to the more privilege, more prestige. He was glad about it. It says he was glad. So the people of Dan took what Micah had made, the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob, and they rebuilt the city and lived in it. So the Danites went up and destroyed these people. Now, they probably weren't innocent in this perspective, like we understand that everybody has got sin in them, and everybody deserves wrath of God. But these guys were innocent in the sense of this is, we'd have no connection to these other tribes that God told them to wipe out. As far as we know, Dan should not have been up there killing these people. This was not holy war. This was massacre. And it was all prompted because of their own disobedience and faithlessness. What right did they have to take this land while rejecting their own inheritance that God had given them? But as soon as they get there, they get right down to their idolatry. The people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. 
So they got straight down to setting up this false worship, place of false worship, and it endured. It stayed there through their generations, all the way down. It says, they, um, and these Levites stayed there and served the people all the way down to the captivity of the land. So all the way to the exile, all the way through the period of kings and the splitting of north and south Israel, this, this group of priests stayed there. We hope that perhaps there was a rev- uh, they revoked the idols and got back to worshipping the true God. But the way that it's talked about here doesn't leave us with much hope on that front. This was a rival worship centre to God's tabernacle at Shiloh. And it's a great reminder that just because something is old doesn't make it true. Right now, many people are feeling a kind of an uncomfortableness with the, with the pace of change and the kind of um, the shallowness of the modern age. And so many people turn and we go, well, what happened in the past? What, what's endured the test of time? And we go back to things like Greek philosophy or we go back to the churches that look the oldest and smell the funniest because we think that we're getting something better because it's older. Now, there might well be something valuable in what is old and what has gone before. We should listen to the wisdom of our forefathers in the faith and what has been built for us. But just because it's old doesn't make it better. Just because these Levites stayed there and were there for many, many generations doesn't mean that they were doing the right thing. But in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. If only they had a godly king who could set things right, who could show them how to worship God rightly, who could teach the people, who could lead them away from evil, and who could deliver them, maybe even impossibly, from their own sin in their own hearts. Unfortunately, they would not get that king. But eventually, God's people would get a king that was a bit like that, and his name was King David. This book leaves us hungering for a king like David, a messianic king, a godly king, a king appointed by the Lord himself. But even David couldn't pull it off. Even David couldn't do it perfectly. This here reminds us of our own day where we have people doing everything that is right in their own eyes. And even we know the temptation within ourselves where we go and do what is right in our own eyes without even thinking about it. It's not uncommon to hear about Christians who've decided, this is the way that I'm going to worship God. Or I know that this is, what, this is how people have normally done it, but I'm just going to do it my own way. Not, I've gone back to the Lord's Word and I've studied it, And this is what God clearly says. No, this is how I feel it should be done. People want to worship the way that is right in their own eyes. They want to live in the way that is right in their own eyes. We need need a rescuer from this. And although in those days there was no king, these days there is a king. There is a king who sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven and who is ruling and reigning, who all authority and in heaven and on earth has been given to him and he reigns right now. And he is a king who will teach you how to worship rightly. He is a king who will lead his people in the ways of God. He is a king who leads us to turn away from evil and to righteousness 
He is a king who can deliver you from the compounding nature of sin. This king is Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is a king who has made atonement for us and the one who will deliver you and put his spirit in you and enable you to walk in his ways if you would ask him. He doesn't ask you to, he doesn't ask you to pay him. You don't have to pay him 10, 10 silver pieces a year to be in his good books. No, all you need to do is ask him. Come to him and ask him to cleanse you from your sin, to take away your unrighteousness and to receive you into his kingdom. And he will. And he will lead you and guide you all the days of your life. He will give you eternal life. He will bring you into the prosperity that the Danites wanted but couldn't take because they refused their inheritance. He will help you turn away from all that is sinful and evil in this world and bring you into a world that has no evil forevermore. Let's thank him for that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, our King, who rules and reigns right now. We thank you that he is a king who delivers and one who can deliver permanently. We thank you, Lord, that he is the king who teaches us how to worship rightly. And we thank you, Lord, that he is a king who leads his people in righteousness. Lord, we look back and we see the dire state that Israel was in. We look around us and we see the dire state that our world is in. But Lord, we remember that you are on the throne and that all is not lost. Lord, we entrust ourselves to you, our faithful creator, while doing good. And Lord, we look ahead and we see the beautiful promises that you have for us. Lord, keep us and sanctify us from the evil of this world. Sanctify us and, and keep us from uh, proud arrogance in our worship of you and of thinking too highly of ourselves. And Lord, please lead us safely into a promised land where, where we will never depart, where we will never be faithless where we will worship you rightly and properly, in spirit and in truth forevermore. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.